Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. City of Ghosts is an animated series. It centers a group of kids who interview ghosts and in the process, learn about the history of Los Angeles. The show is so many things. It's calming, it's weird, it's informing, it's affirming, it's beautiful and it's powerful. You hear the real voices of Los Angeles residents talking about their experiences. It deals with topics that are often overlooked on television, especially television that's made for children. One episode talks about the Tongva, the native peoples who survived in Los Angeles through colonization. We start every episode with a map of our city, one with all the names and places we know. But who came up with those names? And were there other names before them? Another episode touches on gentrification. They redesigned the park and put a big fence up and the drum circle had to go away. But that park is the heartbeat of the community. That park is the heartbeat. And another looks at the U.S. government's incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. I hated history because when we get to World War II, I just felt that discrimination, like we, we were the, the uh, perpetrators. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about television, whose stories are told, and by whom. Later, we'll talk about TV shows that center Black characters. But up first, we talk with Elizabeth Ito. She's a writer, director, and storyboard artist in the animation industry. She's worked on the popular animated show Adventure Time and is creator of the Peabody award-winning City of Ghosts. It's currently available on Netflix. Elizabeth, it's wonderful to have you on Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you inviting me. Yeah, but before we talk about the particular shows that you have created and worked on, I'm curious about animation. Like, how did you discover that animation was the art form that you were connected to or that you wanted to explore? What was that connection? Uh, Well, since I was really little, I always really liked to draw. Um, And I also was really into, I don't know, just music and a lot of creative things. Um, And then as I got older, I was just trying to figure out, you know, what's like a, what's a job that you can do with that <laughs> with that art? Because when you tell your parents, like, I want to be an artist. I mean, my parents were really understanding and they were kind of like, well, what kind of artist do you want to be? Um, so then when I was in 11th grade, I went to this um, state program here in California called uh, CESA. That's uh, California State Summer School for the Arts. Um, and I had applied for it for animation because they didn't They didn't have that at my high school as like a thing you could take. Um, And it was amazing. Like, I think it was just one of those things where, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just because I was also a teenager, but you just sort of realize like this media is like combining everything that I like. Like it combines the ability to 
like have rhythm and music and film and drawing and all of that um all in the same package so that's pretty much yeah how i found it <laughs> the beauty of art is what you just communicated that art can encompass all these emotions and interests and feelings it can engage us in ways that are direct and indirect it's why i think having art in all its forms available to students is so critical, especially as they are defining their interest. But one piece of your art that I think is also so critical here in this moment is thinking about representation and the ways that you as a storyteller have the opportunity to tell stories in different ways, to bring together different voices and really highlight the diversity of those stories. Talk to us about Adventure Time, which was this crazy popular animated series on Cartoon Network and tapped into representation in all different kinds of ways, but also helped introduce us to you as a creator. Talk about that show. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm so stoked that Adventure Time was the phenomenon that it was because uh, I've known Penn since we were in school together. Um, he created Adventure Time and um, it had just sort of all the things that I like about Penn's work where it's it's really playful, obviously, but it's also just like grounded in something. Um, so I came to that because I had actually just like lost my job at another place because in uh, it's long story short, the studio kind of collapsed in a short amount of time and Penn had heard that I needed a job. So uh, he invited me to be to try out to be a storyboard artist on the show. Um, and within the the life of Adventure Time, I, I was a storyboard artist at one point and then I came back as a director. Um, I think there are a lot of things that I learned on that show just about I mean, one thing was just that it was one of the first places where I, I felt like um, this is kind of where I belong. Like this is a show that operates in a way that I understand the choices that artists are making and um, the ways that they're asking um, voices to sound or just like the jokes that they make even. Um, and I think I really appreciated that a lot of Adventure Time is focused on, I mean, this is just one aspect of it, but one of the things that stood out for me was just when we would have like a guest voice or something, you know, like we didn't, most of the time, I can't think of exceptions, but I'm sure there were some, but most of the time we would just ask people to speak like themselves. Um, because to me and to a lot of our crew, like that's, that's what we like about them because that's why we brought them on. So um, I think that's just something that continued for me. And, and it sort of like stretches out to things that include like, not only like the sound of your voice, but like the way that you talk, the things that you talk about. And I think all of that is just like incredibly important when it comes to representing anybody. <laughs> You know, that idea of voice and sound and authenticity, we had a conversation with Aisha Roscoe from NPR, who talked about when she became a host, there were people who criticized her sound, criticized her voice, and wanted her to sound like everyone but herself. 
And to think about how that shows up even in animated series. You mentioned working with your friend Penn, who is Pendleton Ward, the creator of Adventure Time. What you created together, if I'm honest, in some ways felt really subversive, that you were having these authentic voices telling these stories on a network like Cartoon Network, which was very different in terms of the platform you would expect that. Did you feel like you were kind of, you know, listen, we don't have to be in your face, but we are still going to get across what we intend to do as creators? It's hard for me to speak on it just because I remember at the very beginning, there's just so much that gets thrown at you as to the choices that you have to make and the things that you choose to stick up for versus like what you kind of have to let go. Um, And I don't even really remember all of that stuff from the very beginning. And I'm sure Penn doesn't remember all of it either because it's kind of stuff that you have to block out if you want to keep working. Um, but I do think there were moments where there were certain things that we could we we felt compelled to fight for because we knew like like just even sometimes it's just like a word use. I remember there was one for me where it was like this is a very specific thing, but the, there was some note that came back about some characters saying like they were prego, <laughs> and there was some kind of issue with that. And I remember just, I was pregnant at the time. So it was kind of like, this is a really weird thing for you guys to be like harping on. Cause me as a prego person does not have a feeling that this is a, like, you know, that we shouldn't be able to say that. <laughs> um, so like things like that, I think like later got a little bit easier to kind of like push back on once you have the momentum from the beginning. But at the beginning, there's a lot that you have to sort of navigate as to like, am I going to say something about that? Or is that okay to let that go? <laughs> and I imagine too, that being a creator in that space where you want the artistic control, and you are also navigating what sometimes can feel like competing interest, there's a big responsibility in that and making sure you are true to the integrity of the work and the art, but also, as you said, having to understand certain things aren't worth fighting for in the moment. That's a big responsibility. And you go out and create your own Peabody award-winning show. So it's clear that you are used to doing hard things and that you do them well. That award-winning series is called City of Ghosts. It's about a group of children who interview ghosts And they learn about the history of different neighborhoods across L.A. Where did the idea for that series come from? Part of it was uh, like when I was little, I had an experience with a ghost, like when I was six. Um, And so I was thinking about ghosts and I was thinking about VR. (laughs) Uh, And like one of the things was just that people were trying to figure out whether like, can you storytell with stuff like VR? How do you do it? That kind of stuff. And when I was thinking about it, I was like, well, I've tried a few experiences and um, it's weird for me because at the time I felt like uh, most of them made me feel ghost-like, like when you're watching something, but no one else in that environment can really see you. It feels weird. Um And so I had been thinking about like, oh, maybe like if you were using VR, you could do a project about ghosts. And then just related to that, I was thinking about, I mean, I I live in L.A., so it's like 
everything's getting gentrified everywhere <laughs> and so there was this thought of like I really want to be able to talk about that but I don't think I can just propose a show about gentrification that doesn't seem like <laughs> anyone's gonna go for that so how do you wrap that up in something that like what is it that what is it that I'm trying to do like I'm trying to make sure that kids who are here have some idea of like the history of where they live so that even if businesses change, even if the neighborhood changes, um, you can still have this record that kids can look at and go like, oh, that's that's why that building over there looks like that, or that's who used to be there, or oh, now that business is this, and it used to be that. I saw it in the show or something like that. So um, it was that. And then the last piece of it was just really wanting like a show for my own kids that spoke to like, um, sensitive children and children that were just kind of like curious and sensitive and maybe a little bit weird <laughs> and also just really interested when they find stuff out. So, yeah. <laughs> As a grown up who has always been a weird kid, thank you for speaking to <laughs> us and creating for us. But I think that's the power of what you have created here. There are layers and complexities to this because you are telling real stories, real experience from real people. And that is much different from thinking about the end game of the story you want to tell and then just creating all the pieces. It's much more complicated to do it the way that you do, but it is so much more powerful because with all the development, the displacement that's happening, you are centering people. You are centering real experiences, real identities that get tied in to space and place. Talk to us about that creative choice of this is how I want to tell these stories and not just doing it the easier way or the way that it's usually done. What was that choice for you? I'm still trying to get over what you said because it made me choked up. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that is what I'm trying to do. Um I don't it, I don't know. It was an insane journey. I like I <laughs> It's like I don't I don't think I even went into it thinking like uh thinking all that stuff that I just told you. I mean, I did want to make a show for like my kid, but like part of it was just uh I really thrive on creating stuff in ways that feels like you're not you're not doing a template you know like or you're making your own template um there's stuff that's influenced me where i think like i watched a lot of creature comforts that was this uh stop motion animated short by um, this animator nick park and ardman where he interviewed uh people i think they're at the zoo but he also turned them into zoo animals talking about their circumstances and it always really just made me excited seeing it because it was so funny and it's so like it, there's just something really great about when you're able to capture a person in a form that isn't actually them like that isn't live action and there's something that com I think compels me to watch it and to be entertained by it um so I think like going back to like the adventure time thing of like appreciating people's actual voices um it's a lot of that for me and it's a lot of like when you talk to people sometimes you'll have to talk to them for a long time but I feel like every person has 
something that they can tell you that's like really interesting about their story or just something where you will relate to them. It's just a matter of like, how do you find that? How do you find your way to them um, being comfortable enough with you to like release that? (laughs) Thinking about efforts to ban books. Thinking about efforts to change what kids learn because history is too heavy and it's too hard and it's too scary. And then also thinking about this is a series that is introducing, I say kids, but you, as you know, the the viewers of all ranges, you allow people to see themselves in these stories and encounter issues that may be too big and too scary, but you make it accessible in a way. I can't name any other kids show or animated series that's talking about gentrification or talking about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. And yet you are confronting this head on and saying the same things that we want younger viewers to know. We want to remind adults who either have forgotten or chosen not to engage. And I think about the power of conversation intergenerationally that your show allows us to have. Do you see a weight in that? Or is it, look, I'm figuring it out as I go and I'm going to embrace the journey as it is? Well, there's definitely a weight. (laughs) Um, Like, yeah, I I try to be really honest about it, but like in the scope of things that we covered, um, like to be completely frank, the one that made me the most nervous was like the episode we did about uh, the Tongva um, because there's a huge weight <laughs> to everything that indigenous people in this country have been through. Um, and specifically them and it, because, I mean, I focused on them because it, it was something that I had very, very, very little knowledge about. And that made me really nervous to try to like, I think I, I wasn't sure yet whether we were going to do that at the very beginning because of that. I, I mean, the whole show, honestly, there were parts of it where I was like, I was really nervous about that because I follow a lot of things that happen in, <laughs> like on social media, probably too much where I'm, I'm just like, I, I just I don't want to do it wrong. <laughs> I don't want to get I don't want to get shouted down, but like also you know, maybe we just go about it in a way where, like, the chances are slim. Like, if you if you focus on the people, if you focus on trying to center that story instead of, like, your introduction to that story, then I think, like, that's where the sweet spot is. But it's also, like, yeah, I'm still sort of navigating it. I'll still take those chances. But um, I try to be really cautious about it because I know that there's a lot of places where people have done it wrong. <laughs> I think what you have just voiced for us is the value of cultural humility, right? That says, I don't know all the answers. I may not be the person who is the expert on this, but not telling these stories and not trying to tell these stories well and accurately and honor the experience, that doesn't get us anywhere either. I want you to think about the places that you've lived throughout your life. What's the story that you want people in the future to know or remember about the places you've lived? 
Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> let me think for a second. I mean, one thing, I guess this is just, this is just a, a really, su not super, it's not superficial, but it is just a thing I remember from my childhood. Like, uh, where my family lives is like in the Crenshaw area. So that's kind of like South Central adjacent and obviously like right next to Lamert Park. Um, and for the period when I was in, you know, elementary school, junior high, high school, uh, that area was a little rough and also just, I, but I think also like certain areas of the city, like West side folks might, it's so close, but it's really random that they'll have judgments about what they'll encounter if they come to your neighborhood to hang out with you or who lives there, what's going on there. Um, and I don't know. I just hope that in the future there's kind of like less uh less closed offedness to like the the all of the different communities we have here where I think it doesn't have to be like that. You could you could go down there and you could see what it's actually like for yourself. It's not that far. And like for people to take those steps and to support those communities like where you can go find out about it before it's a it's a hot topic of gentrification or something. You could go meet people that live there. You could go, yeah, just check out the culture in different places um, before it's like a point of hot point, <laughs> you know. And that could do a lot for for our city just to know about that. <laughs> I, I think it helps have a collective sense of pride, of of understanding, and of connection. And to think about how proximate we are to one another, and yet there seem to be social, political, economic forces that thrive on keeping us separate or making us feel like our, our interests aren't connected. You and your work deal with a lot of challenging topics, challenging themes. You tackle questions of representation, and animation becomes this sort of thread for the story. I'm curious, as we come to the close of this conversation, what is it that gives you hope? Uh, right now, kids give me a lot of hope. Um, they give me the most hope, I think, because um, they're, they're smart. They think outside the box. They know, they know when you're lying and when you're not. Um, there's a lot of things to be hopeless about right now, I think. But um, anytime that I get to spend time witnessing that, you know, like whether it's going to a classroom and teaching them how to make zines or just even being around them, like like my own kids, um, but also other people's kids where they say really funny things. They're like some of the best comedians, uh, like the weirdest, best comedians. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's. I'll I'll pick that children. <laughs> Here's to curious weird kids everywhere. May we know them and be them. Elizabeth Ito is a writer, director and storyboard artist. She's creator of the award-winning series City of Ghosts. It's currently available on Netflix. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, we hear about the history of Black TV from Diane Carroll to Issa Rae. This is Disrupted. Stay with us.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're talking about representation and television. When the show A Different World was first on TV, it was unlike anything I had ever seen before. Somebody has got to talk to him. And say what? And ask him why he is going over there to risk his life. For what? Oil? Nationalism? We have a million problems in this country. That show was the first time that I saw a group of students whose experiences match my own. At the fictional Hillman College in Virginia, there were first-generation students, legacy students, students from working-class backgrounds, all different shades and experiences trying to figure it out together. 30 years after that show premiered, it's still the go-to series that I enjoy watching with my own teenage daughter. A Different World is just one of the shows covered in the book Black TV, five decades of groundbreaking television from Soul Train to Blackish and beyond. Bethany Butler is author of the book, and she's former reporter for The Washington Post, covering television and pop culture. Bethany, it's great to have you on Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. You know, before we talk about the book, I want to talk about television and what it is that draws you in. It was such a key piece of my childhood growing up. It was watching documentaries with my grandfather or in college planning our schedule around when a different world would air so we could all be together. It was this way of coming together. What is it about television as a genre that really attracts your interest? I think I I totally agree with that. I feel similarly that, you know, growing up, I loved those moments where I would watch things with my family and especially my dad. Um, My dad had a real love of pop culture. And so the shows that we were watching as a family, they're just so memorable. And I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And so in that time, you know, there were shows that sort of reflected my experience. And, you know, it's important to see yourself on TV. Um, And I just love the stories that TV can tell. Let's talk about the stories that TV can tell and also the stories that you're telling in your work. Share with our listeners why the decision or uh, the intent to focus on Black TV and what it means for all of these different things that you go through in the book. Yeah, well, I think it's a really interesting time to look at Black television. both because of 
the creators that are working today and the shows that we have now, you know, talk, I'm talking about Issa Rae, Donald Glover, Quinta Brunson of Abbott Elementary. And we're doing, Black creators are doing really exciting things and telling their own stories, as opposed to sort of the beginning of my book where we start with Julia, which starred Diane Carroll. And we know that during the 60s and 70s and even 80s, you know, the writer rooms were mostly white. Let me ask you what may seem like a really basic and naive question. How do you define Black television? Because what you just mentioned were the the creators and creatives that we have today who are telling these stories that may not just focus on Black lives and Black realities, but are created by Black people. That is very different from what you mentioned in the past, where it was primarily a room of white writers trying to tell the stories of Black people. So what constitutes Black television as you define it? Yeah, so in my book, um, I define Black TV as these shows and stories where they center Black people and it's not about sort of the white people around them. So we're not the BFF to the white lead character. Um, and obviously, that was a challenge in, you know, starting from the late 60s, there there didn't exist at that time, you know, a show that was created by a black person and and who had control over the storytelling. Um, so in those early days, I think I defined black TV by shows that had um, shows that had a majority black cast, uh, shows that centered a black lead. Let's talk about one of those shows that you mentioned a few moments ago, and that is the iconic show Julia, which starred Diane Carroll, who talent beyond belief in so many different areas and what it meant for this show that premiered in 1968. I think let's pause there for a moment. 1968, a show that centers a black woman and all of the other dynamics that come along with that, all the judgments, how difficult it was to do that. Share with our listeners, what is it about that series that made you say, this is where I want to start the book because of all the threads that come together within the show? Julia was the first TV show to center a Black family. Um, as I describe it in the book, you know, this was about... Julia, Diane Carroll's character, and she was a widow raising her son. And the show took you into their home and show their day-to-day lives. And one thing that creator Hal Cantor and Diane Carroll agreed on, because there was a lot that they disagreed on, but one thing they agreed on was they wanted Julia to spotlight the Black middle class. And that had never really been seen on TV before then. As you were talking about that, the, the agreements and the disagreements that came into that. At its core, television is about art and about who has control over art, who gets to tell those stories. What are the stories that we tell? And frankly, Bethany, recognizing the challenge of deciding which stories to tell, because so much is riding on Julia as a, as a show, but also on Diane Carroll 
of understanding. It is rare. It has not existed that we've had this middle-class experience there. And I'm going to be the one to present that. And then we fast forward to the 90s with like the Cosby show where people said, oh, that's so unrealistic. Those kinds of black families don't exist. And you had other people saying, well, actually, yes, we do exist. And how do we tell the beauty, the diversity of existence within black communities, understanding we may only have 30 minutes, 24 minutes, however commercials were at the time to do it. How much of a, of a pressure or burden does that place on creators when they realize the stakes are so much higher than just let's make good TV? It puts so much pressure on creators. And I think Diane Carroll is an example of how much pressure it puts on talent as well, talent and creatives, writers. Uh, Diane Carroll felt such a responsibility to Black people. She knew that as the first to take this on. She, you know, she, she even said that it would be so uh, transformative for Black children. She was aware that just the idea of a Black child tuning in and seeing her would be so mental. And I think she really had to pick her battles in a way um, because she knew it was such an important moment. Uh, but she also, you know, there were certain things that she went back with how Cantor on, like, no, I don't, I don't think a Black mother would do that. I don't think a Black woman would do that. Um, and they didn't always agree. And, and ultimately how Cantor was the one in power. But I think that that's part of Diane Carroll's legacy that she took that role on. She understood how important it was. And I think we've seen the talent and writers and creators that came after her have done the same thing. You know, they have to pick their battles with the network. They have to uh, decide sort of what they're going to fight for. Um, and I think with every show, there's a progression. And so none of these shows exist in a vacuum. I feel like every single one is important and a stepping stone to where we are now. What I also appreciate about the nuance that you introduce in this book and the context that you introduce for us to consider is that for many actors and creators, it isn't this either or, either I'm presenting myself as a Black actor or actress, or I just want to be seen as an actor, that it's really a negotiation that Let's be honest, gender plays into it in many ways. Proximity to power plays into it. And I want to lift this piece from your book where you're talking about Flip Wilson, the great comedian, Flip Wilson. And you said, Wilson decided early on in his career that his act didn't need to be political. Talk to us more about that decision in the context of Flip Wilson, but others who are navigating, am I going to be political or not? Yeah, I think the really interesting thing about Flip Wilson is, you know, he was completely, or not completely, but he was unknown to sort of white America, middle America, um, until the mid 60s, when Red Fox appeared on the Johnny Parchin show, and was asked, who's the hottest comedian working now? And he cited Flip Wilson. Um, and Flip Wilson was on that show within weeks, or within months. And then ultimately, he became even a guest host for it. Um, but I think, you know, for Flip Wilson, he had a plan. He just wanted to be a comedian. And I think what was interesting to me 
is looking back at some of the news archives from that time and seeing what was written about Flip Wilson. And obviously, just like Hollywood, you know, journalism was also very white. So there was a, these were often white men asking him, um, you know, sort of expecting his act to be political because he was black. And I think he just wanted to be seen as Flip Wilson, but by virtue of being Flip Wilson and being a Black man, you know, that experience was infused into his work. Coming up, we'll talk about the current status of Black TV. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're looking at representation in television. We've been talking with Bethany Butler, author of Black TV, five decades of groundbreaking television from Soul Train to Blackish and beyond. Ask Bethany about the influential TV writer and producer Norman Lear, who died this past December. Lear was born in New Haven and grew up in Hartford. Bethany's book talks about many of the shows that he worked on, like Sanford and Son. You mean to tell me you want me to be sick just because you're sick? Yeah, I don't want to suffer y'all by myself. <laughs> A family that's sick together sticks together. And the Jeffersons. What's this going to be, a new fight or an old one? Your mother is coming to dinner. It's an old one. <laughs> Lear's shows were popular, but they were also criticized. Some of that criticism was about the show's stories, and also the fact that many of the people working behind the camera were white. Ask Bethany about Lear's legacy. Yeah, I think, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in Hollywood who doesn't adore Norman Lear. I mean, he's, his legacy was so powerful and important. Um, at the same time, you know, we do know that Norman Lear sort of came of age in an era where Black creators did not hold the power in Hollywood. Um, I think that Norman Lear was a was a pioneer in recognizing that Black stories deserve to be told on television. Um, obviously, there was a lot of criticism about how those stories were presented. As you said, you know, most of the writers, if not all of them, were white, and you know, he took an important he took an important step. Um, but he was criticized for stereotypical storylines and characters. I think what Norman Lear ultimately did was, you know, he did step aside and make way for Black creators, including Kenya Barris. So he was a, you know, a mentor to Kenya Barris, the creator of Blackish. And you can see the influence of Lear in Blackish, um, even in certain episodes that were parodies of, of Norman Lear's shows. Uh, but absolutely, you know, there are there are uh, Black writers who felt that they did not get their due, um, even though they were aligned with Norman Lear, who was, you know, a visionary and recognizing that these stories should be on TV. What I hear from you also, Bethany, is we're talking about the evolution of television, the evolution of Black television, but also the evolution in people's thinking of who gets to tell a story 
but also what we thought was appropriate at a time may not be what we see as acceptable now in our present lens, but still having the space to acknowledge what it took to even tell those stories. You know, I probably will be criticized for this. Please don't judge me, Bethany. You're the expert. I still love watching reruns of Good Times because it it is this connection to a childhood memory. But I look at this show that was created decades ago, and I think about the stories that they're telling, but also the issues they're addressing, whether it's substance abuse, housing insecurity, health equity, all of these things that we are still grappling with. And to put that on television in the 1970s was groundbreaking, but also risky. And here's another area that's risky comedy. You have this section in your book that's called A Brief History of First Black President Jokes. What's key is that these jokes predate the election of Barack Obama in 2008. There's a clip circulating on TikTok now of Richard Pryor playing a Black president. What makes jokes about Black presidents, Black first presidents, so important that they have this long legacy there. <laughs> I thought that was so interesting. Um, as you mentioned, you know, Richard Pryor portrayed the first Black president in a sketch um, on his his Eponymous show. And watching it, I was so struck by almost like it was almost like a premonition um, <laughs> just that he, you know, this was in the seventies, but he's speaking to issues that are going on right now. I think that there are so, there are so many through lines in this book in general, but I think, and in black TV, but I also think there are through lines in black humor. And so this was something that sort of, we've seen it in so many different formats, you know, we've seen it in, Chris Rock movies. We've seen it on the Richard Pryor show. Um, and we've seen Key and Peele do it. You know, we've even seen Dave Chappelle do it. So I feel like it's just, it's another way that these shows are sort of unified as a canon or even a universe that that's part of what makes Black TV, Black TV. That is the power of television, that it doesn't have to be fully explained. It can trigger a connection and a memory that brings people in together and it sticks with you in these ways. That I also think is the beauty of some of the shows that we think about now when it comes to television, things like Atlanta, Insecure, When They See Us, very different approaches to everything from the lighting of black skin and insecure, and how that brings people into a different experience. How you watch Atlanta from season to season, and there are some episodes where you go, I have no idea what just happened, but I really want to watch it again because I need, I feel like I'm missing something, to others where you still laugh when you think about Cat Williams being the alligator man. I'm the alligator man, okay? So now, just leave me alone. Won't be no gator. What do you think about the current status of Black television shows? We're, we're not in the 90s where it seemed like we had a really diverse group all on one network, but we are on streaming platforms and others. What's the current status of Black TV? 
Um, well, obviously, I'm so excited about Black television in general, but especially now. And you mentioned Atlanta, and I, you know, I think that's such a brilliant show. I think that, you know, Donald Glover has talked about having to, he called it Trojan horsing effects, you know, so the idea that he pitched this show and even being Donald Glover, a you know, well-known comedian and musical artist, he still had to sort of uh, paper what he brought to the network, to the people in power. Um, he couldn't tell them exactly what Atlanta would be. And I think if you've watched Atlanta, you understand why, <laughs> because it's not really something that you explain. I think that was one of the best things about Atlanta is that it was subtle. It was surreal. Um, and, you know, I think Donald Glover has acknowledged he's only able to do that now because of the comedians that came before him. Um, you know, he mentioned Chris Rock uh, in a New Yorker article and said that, you know, he wouldn't have been able to do Atlanta without Chris Rock. And you also mentioned Issa Rae is insecure. And I think that's another example of someone who is representative of the people who came before her and also very intentional about portraying, you know, for me, it's like black millennial hood <laughs> being a, you know, black millennial. I saw myself in that show. I saw sort of, you know, work struggles, friendship struggles. These are all universal themes. And unfortunately, I do think that black creators are still dealing with that question, you know, of like, will this appeal to everyone when it doesn't in fact really matter, you know, insecure resonated with so many people for different reasons, but especially black women, because it was our experience on screen. What I keep hearing come up in your work, Bethany, is this connection of acknowledgement of the past, acknowledge of the history and the lineage that these newer shows come into. And you had an article where you talk about this in the Washington Post. And you say, we're in a golden age of Black television. But there would be no scandal without Julia, no Blackish without Good Times, no Swarm without Atlanta. And as I read that and prepared for our conversation today, I kept going back to that feeling I had when I saw the beautiful regal Marla Gibbs on stage of the Emmys, 92 years old, gorgeous, sharp. I mean, the, the open shoulder. I was like, Let's go, Marla Gibbs, right? I am so honored to be presenting this award with the incomparable Marla Gibbs. What's the secret to working in Hollywood for so long? Oh, that's easy, baby. The wage gap. I got to work 20 more years before I can retire. But if you great writers write something for me, I'll just keep on working and cut into that wage gap. <laughs> it was this moment that blew me away because she could deliver this humor, but it was wrapped totally in reality of standing on that stage beside Quinta Brunson that we know became the first black woman in 40 years to win Best Actress in Comedy, and only the second in the history of that award show. And they've been giving out Emmys nearly 75 years. Nisi Nash Betts talks about it in her work. 
Taraji P. Henson talks about it in the context of film, but it all goes back to Marla Gibbs reminding us, we have to acknowledge that history. We have to acknowledge the people who have made it possible to have these diverse creators and all the stories that they are telling. All of that leads me to this very basic question. What do you see as the future of Black television, given that history and the fact that we're still making history in 2024? You know, it's such a pivotal time in Black TV history uh, because of the creators that are able to tell these authentic stories and be in control of their projects. And I also think that, you know, there's this through line from, you know, Julia to Scandal. I mentioned this in the book that, you know, Scandal used Julia Baker, uh, that was Diane Carroll's character, used her as an alias in Scandal. It's just sort of written into the script. And Shonda Rhimes had talked about how influential it was for her to see Diane Carroll as Julia. And so, you know, every show is connected really throughout the the entire history of Black TV. And I think that will continue. And I think that it's so important that we have, we are starting to see these moments at, you know, the Emmys, which is, you know, the Emmys convey prestige. They are an institution in Hollywood and people recognize when, you know, stars attend them when they're on stage. And so to see Marla Gibbs, with Christopher Brunson and acknowledging that connection, you know, it's so important. Thinking about Marla Gibbs as an actress, thinking about her legacy, thinking about the legacy that her granddaughter, Sonia Winton, who is this amazing writer, director, producer, creative, that she is charting a path. And how at the core of it is this love of Black people, of Black experiences and an acknowledgement of telling those stories. Bethany Butler is the author of Black TV, five decades of groundbreaking television from Soul Train to Blackish and beyond. She's former reporter for the Washington Post and covered television and pop culture. Bethany, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.